I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Know someone who might be struggling with their mental health? You can help. As a listener of Sick Boy, you know that we've been having these types of convos forever now. You'll also know that sometimes we make mistakes. And that's okay. We're human. Supporting someone through struggle in their life isn't easy. It's an art, not a science. And we all make mistakes. That being said, we can do our best to prep by educating ourselves. And our friends over at Jack.org have created a resource for just that. Check out BeThere.org for more information. Let's create a world where we can all better support one another. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast that talks about what it's like to be sick. This week, Dr. Nahid Dasani discusses how few options there are for the homeless when facing desperate health struggles. Let's talk about it. Um, I think we're, we're pretty good to go. Good to go. So this almost didn't happen. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have pneumonia. Ask, I was going to ask you if you, yeah. what's the deal with so the, the I got all I got all fucked up like recently. Right. Um, and was like hospitalized with yeah. like really like they called it a significant pneumonia on my on my left lung. Been a bit of a running joke. Yeah, on the on the podcast. Not a very good one. Nope. <laughs> it's a Brian joke. It's a Brian joke. And uh, and so it was like it was I was I was in for IV antibiotics for two weeks, and uh, and like whatever it was like my standard very common like I know that routine living with CF, and then I got out. Um, less than a month ago, like the day of Halloween, I was out of the hospital and two days ago I started having crazy, crazy pain in my right lung. Oh no. Like to the point where I, I was radiating my shoulder and it was going down through my back. And I, I was like, I think this is a lung collapse. So I looked it up. Oh, whoa, doctor yeah. went to Doctor Google. The Probably Google. could have fucking messaged you, knowing that you were <laughs> coming here. Google anytime. <laughs> doctor Doctor Google's all like always um, verifies or confirms your worst fears. It, yeah, it most certainly and does. Um, <laughs> it most certainly does. But not only did I use Doctor Google, but I also used our friend Jamie, who just recently had a lung transplant. And I said, "Yo, Jamie, when you had your when you had your lung collapse, because I know she's gone through it twice." I was like, "What? What did it feel like?" And she was like, "I had." It almost felt like a, a really bad stitch. Check. She was like, it was radiating to my shoulder and through my back. And I was like, check. And then she was like, and every time I took a breath in, it was like a stabbing pain. And I was like, that is exactly what is going on right now. Oh, so man. I was totally freaking out. It was Friday, like kind of getting to the end of the day on Friday. Anyway, the CF clinic brought me in. They did a x-ray and they were like, uh, you don't have a pneumothorax, right. but you do have pneumonia. Is that again. the technical word for a lung collapse? Pneumothorax. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pneumothorax. Because yeah. you said that a couple times, and I was like, "Cool, I'm glad it's not a pneumothorax." <laughs> <laughs> I thought that word was much cool. more commonly known. Uh, pneumothorax. Right. Pneumothorax. Probably super the happy it's not who have, like lung things. <laughs> no. Would be more commonly known. <laughs> no, I don't know. I learned it in uh, first aid, like when when we did like wilderness first responder. 
Never take a first aid. Co- never took a first aid course before. <laughs> that should not be said on on Sick Boy Podcast. <laughs> but I did save a man's life on the airport uh, bathroom once when he died. So. You did. You did. Um, so anyway, long story short, this, we almost weren't sure if I was going to be able to do this or if I was going to have to. Do, we were going to like bring you into the hospital, right? Um, but so wait, do you have significant pneumonia again or insignificant pneumonia now? It's not insignificant. It's just pneumonia that they're going to treat with oral, oral antibiotics. And how, how are you feeling now? I feel, uh, I feel okay right now. I mean, I'm sure by like 1 p.m. today I'll be exhausted. Right. But the, the lung pain's gone, kind of gone away. Right. I only woke up once last night mm-hmm. from it, whereas like the night before I kept waking up. Right. So, um, but yeah, I feel good. Wow, I wow. feel really good that you're here. And I'm, I'm so glad to be here and that we're actually doing this. This yeah. is great. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you and I met uh, a few years ago. That's right, yeah. At the International uh, Death, Death Symposium. Symposium. That's right. Yeah, remind me, what were you there to speak about? So we were on a panel together. That's um, right. And uh, so we were talking about perspectives of death and dying. And I was kind of bringing the perspective of caring for folks who are marginalized or, or structurally vulnerable in our community, mm-hmm. particularly the homeless and vulnerably housed population. Yes, because yeah. that is your jam. It is a jam. <laughs> and it was a jam that I remember hearing when we first like when we first met and when we were speaking on that panel. It was something that that struck me really deeply because it was the first time, you know, it, it was the first time I ever thought about how I, I never had the thought about I've, I've thought about death. I've thought about, you know, palliative care, hospice care so many times up to this point. Never once did I ever think, well, wait, how do people who are homeless like deal with death? Right. What happens to someone who's homeless who has terminal cancer? Right. It never crossed my mind. And then I felt like such an asshole for never thinking about that. Did, did it <laughs> never know? cross your mind? Because, you know, as you were, as you guys are talking about this here, I was thinking, um, I've never thought about it because I just assumed, you know, we have a healthcare system in Canada that's built to support right. our entire population. Right. I would assume that, you know, even if somebody was homeless, they would still have the same types of access. I mean, that's me not thinking about the details and the challenges that come with, you know, homelessness. Right. Mm-hmm. But what, so what is it, you know, why, what makes this marginalized group have more difficult access to the healthcare that the Canadian system is supposed to provide? Well, that's just it. I think we make a lot of assumptions in our healthcare system. Um, in fact, when we've designed um, um, palliative care, we actually called it home care. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I go to conferences and I'm like, guys, there's no greater example of social exclusion in our healthcare system. We designed home care and there's a significant proportion of Canadians who are homeless. Like, so literally we've designed a system that is not able to deliver home care to the homeless and on the street, in shelters, transitional housing. But like, that's just one piece. Um, This is a population that um, deals with mental illness. Uh, substance use disorders are mm-hmm. common um, and uh, doesn't trust the healthcare system because they're treated so badly when they show mm-hmm. up in the emergency departments and hospitals and whatnot. So those are just some huge, uh, some of the huge factors mm-hmm. that play a role. I, I should say um, immediately up front too, my, my uncle is somebody who's been um, part of the homeless population uh, um, throughout his lifetime. And um, I've seen the struggles that he's gone through, right. even yeah, with yeah. public housing, like, you know, it's it's funny because there's you know they there's a right now in Nova Scotia there's a public housing crisis too yeah. I believe and I think in a lot of Canada it's yeah. it's it's a similar way but but he can't even read or write 
So there are forms that you have to fill out to apply to be to get into these programs, but he doesn't even understand the process. Yeah. So and, like so and many like, roadblocks. Yeah, the the like just up front, there's an immediately like a massive roadblock that makes it hard for him to even understand how to get access. And you know, when you talk about mental illness, that's another huge part of it. But but um, what are some of the big challenges that that uh, you're working on specifically to like make this situation better? Yeah. So in 2014, um, uh, colleagues uh, in Toronto at the Inner City <laughs> Health Associates came together to. Uh, to create an intervention that would actually meet people where they're at. And we called it PEACH, Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless. It's a mobile street and shelter-based uh, palliative care program where we go out and meet people under bridges, on the streets, in shelters, so no person falls through the cracks. It started out with, you know, a doctor and our nurse coordinator, Nemerg Ahmed, um, driving around in a Honda Civic. I still drive a Honda Civic. <laughs> <laughs> we just go out and see people, but it's kind of become a full-fledged program that has, like, you know, nurses, case case managers, uh, physicians, PSWs, but also um, um, uh, how we have actually have a peer worker on our team, someone who actually has is an expert in homelessness because uh, she's she's been homeless. So we actually mm. hired her for expertise because she can connect with folks we serve much better than maybe I can because there's that privilege mm. gap because I'm a physician at the end of the day. So a really non traditional healthcare team, but meeting people and and their needs in the way that they need to be met. Is there, there is there sorry is there like a sort of uh, like detective work that you guys have to do. Like if you're out on the streets, just like driving around looking for homeless people, do you like pop up and go, Hey, how's your health? Like, are you yeah, okay? Yeah. I get, yeah, I get what you mean. I mean, there is some element of that. Sometimes we're seeing where we know there's clients and they hang out in this park or in this area of the city and we're out mm-hmm. there. That's less common. Um, one thing that we're really, really um, proud of is we've actually empowered the housing sector, outreach workers, caseworkers, social workers, um, social care workers to actually identify people who have palliative care needs. So traditionally in healthcare, you get a referral from a doctor or a nurse or a healthcare team. We actually get like a third of our referrals from non-healthcare workers. So wow. I'm in outreach worker that's you know uh, in the shelter and I'm, I'm serving this gentleman and he's falling a lot and he's losing weight he doesn't look well can you guys come out and see him and we 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 go out and we we figure that out like they may not have all the specifics mm-hmm. but so we're, we're just it's low threshold low barrier so it's not you don't need all this paperwork and perfect referrals and investigations uh done but we just get there to serve people right mm-hmm. so going, that's a big part of it going back to kind of the 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 start of the conversation we were talking about you know that the gap um or the, the, the problem that exists in just calling it something like home care. And when you visualize, when you visualize this type of care coming to somebody who's in a home versus somebody who's in um, maybe living on the street, is in and out of shelters and stuff like that, what, is that care, what does that care look like from showing up and delivering that care and then... And then and then moving and then mm. moving on. Yeah, yeah. So so just by meeting people where they're at physically, like there's that physical sense for mm-hmm. sure. But this is a very traumatized population. We talk about trauma informed care a lot in our work because one night on the streets can be traumatizing. Being you know living in poverty is traumatizing. Um, a lot of people have faced you know violence, sexual violence, physical violence, whatever it might be. Um, so by being there physically, um, it's it's one piece. But being there emotionally, uh, it, it 
it lends very well to to this very traumatized population as mm. well. So it's a huge part of of being there because they don't tr- they they often don't trust the healthcare system because right. doctors and nurses uh, and other healthcare people uh, we, we there's a huge body of evidence to show that we discriminate this population and other structurally vulnerable populations mm. in our healthcare system. That's why homeless and vulnerably, vulnerably housed folks um, don't often show up or show up very late to healthcare. Mm. Um, and when they show up, they don't get their healthcare needs met. Well, I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of the other night, and I'm I'm making a huge assumption. But you said you were at the ER with your mom, um, mm-hmm. whatever that was, a week or two ago, and oh yeah, and there's the guy that was making all the making a ton of noise, and then you went up you went up to the nurses. Brian went up to the nurses to say, um, "Hey, what's going like?" Just so you know, this guy is like clearly in a lot of pain. I just wanted to like let you know in case like no one has really taken notice. And they said that this guy is there every couple days. Yeah, they they were just basically like you know um, he's here all the time. We we're aware that he's out there. You know, yeah. There's there's not really anything that we can do about it at this time. Yeah, and you know this discourse. Uh, so sometimes it sounds like the team was very progressive and 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 wanted to help, but sometimes. You hear in healthcare circles, uh, they talk about like the difficult patients or the frequent flyers. These are very problematic terms, and I'm kind of getting sick of hearing about this. Frequent Um, flyers, like just people who are like, because is there a sense that maybe is is the does that does that um, arise out of them thinking that like you know them being in the hospital is them not being out on the streets? They're in here, maybe they're trying to get uh, drugs or like is that the perception? So so unfortunately, there is commonly um, a perception that people are drug seeking um, or there's just the stigma and stereotypes that are out there that they mm-hmm. did it to themselves they're lazy right. you know but 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 we gotta we gotta change that language let that language needs to change and we need to start having a conversation not about you know the, the the this is the difficult patient but this is someone who has learned survival skills to be able to survive on the streets and mm-hmm. and and this is a product of trauma and that's why the term you know it's a jargony term structural vulnerability is really important because it takes uh, us the blame away from the person that we're talking about and we say okay this person is in the situation they're in because of because of what's going on around mm-hmm. them people are, people are not ignorant uh, people are not <laughs> obese because they're ignorant they're not taking their diabetes medications because they're stupid people's health and healthcare outcomes are the uh, product of various interacting and power social hierarchies which are defined by discrimination racism oppression you know what we call the structural determinants of health and when, when you flip it on its head and you think that way you realize um, that people are not being difficult this is just what they're doing to survive mm-hmm. this this all sounds like a buttload of work uh <laughs> and, and it, like the amount of work that like when i'm sitting here i i can't help but think like who in who in the right mind would just decide to dive headfirst into all of this <laughs> now i know that's that's probably not how it how it looked and how it yeah. came to be but I, it does make me curious to know how how the fuck did you end up where you are now doing the work that you're doing now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, um, it started with a story. And, you know, the narrative is so powerful. The data is there, for sure. But the, the story is huge. And I was a first-year resident training at the University of Toronto, providing primary care in one of Toronto's largest men's shelters. And I was asked to see a client in distress. Um, his name was Terry. He was uh, When I went to go see him, he was shaking. He was writhing in a ball. He was, he was, he was just, he was in pain crisis. I looked in his mouth and I could see that this was likely a tongue 
cancer that had spread uh, head and neck cancer. And a uh, thing about head and neck cancers is they really, really hurt. Mm. They're painful. What uh, were you doing there? Like, what was your role? You so were... I was providing health care uh, okay. on a day to day basis, not sure. particularly palliative care, but I was there to just provide health care, uh, you know, check people's labs, you know, uh, screen for diabetes. You know, it was really like an urgent care kind of thing. Like a, ge- a general, general physician. Yeah, yeah. It kind exactly. of reminds me of like in the last few episodes of Grey's Anatomy, Meredith Grey has been um, like providing health care at the at job sites. Oh, she, was on, she was on parole, so she was providing right. health care the there. second and, episode yeah. in a row you've mentioned Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, I, I'm sure that your life was exactly like Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, actually, it's it's exactly like it. It's, <laughs> almost, so right. it's almost identical. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry you came all the way from Toronto for this. <laughs> it's okay. It's all good. Yeah, so I examined him, and he he was in pain crisis, but what I learned about him was he had a chronic mental illness, schizophrenia. He, he was using drugs on the street, and he had frequent various drop-in centers um, across Toronto over time, but he was diagnosed with cancer a year before, but because of his feelings of, um, of anger, frustration, and the way he looked, he, he didn't um, keep coming. He didn't follow up for healthcare, so he started to experience pain. So he did what anyone, one of us would do. He went hospital to hospital, ER to ER, walk in to walk in, seeking the kind of pain control that anybody in this country, in this world, should have access to. Terry was denied access to pain medicines. I don't know. Maybe it was the way he looked. Maybe maybe they thought he was drug seeking. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it was the words he said or didn't say. So he found himself in our care. So um, I really tried to like connect with him and. He, he was he was down like he was like, OK, like we'll we'll start some pain meds tomorrow and then maybe we'll get some, you know, we'll I, I agreed to, t- to go to the cancer center and we'll get some radiation to at least shrink the tumor. I got to the shelter early the next day and I couldn't find him in his room or the cafeteria anyway. And one of his friends called from down the hall and said, hey, doc, are you looking for Terry? And I'm like, yeah. He said, oh, you didn't hear Terry died last night. Oh fuck. oh, fuck. Yeah. Terry's body was found in the early hours of the morning by a commuter on her way to work. It was too little, too late. He had overdosed on a combination of alcohol and street drugs. Guys, he killed himself. Like, he committed suicide because mm. he didn't have access to palliative care. So, it's like a really traumatic event, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, like, like many things, in, you know, in medicine and healthcare, you're kind of expected to see the next person and see mm-hmm. the next case. I just couldn't do it. Like I straight yeah. up, I just couldn't do it. So I talked to my program director, took a like a leave, uh, just to like reflect on mm-hmm. this event. I just couldn't understand how in a, a, a beautiful country like Canada, with our healthcare system, right, like you mentioned, how someone could fall through the cracks again and Ooh. again and again. Mm-hmm. But I I learned some things during that time. Um, like the homeless population is the sickest subpopulation in this country of all cause mortality. Twenty eight times more likely to have hepatitis C. Five times more likely to have heart disease. Four times more likely to have cancer. Um, do you know what the average life expectancy is for a housed person in Canada? Like male uh, women? Like like 79, maybe yeah, 80? Around, yeah, around that. Yeah. For the homeless population, it's 34 to 47 years old. Whoa. Wow. That yeah. is a mind-blowing stat. Yeah. So they die at a rate that's 2.3 to 4 times higher than the average Canadian baseline population. So homelessness cuts your lifespan by 50%. So I'm going to say something. I don't know if you'll agree with it. A lot of us are starting to think that homelessness is a terminal diagnosis. It's, it's a terminal diagnosis of the social determinants mm-hmm. of health, how we live, learn, mm-hmm. work, and play. And we know that... When you say a lot of us, yeah. you, you're referring to... So clinicians working in the housing sector, people who work in palliative care, um, health equity researchers, because really like what condition out there predictably cuts lifespan by 50% at the population level? Like I'm a palliative care doctor and I'm telling you that there's a lot of medical diagnoses, biological diagnoses I see that are not that deadly. 
but this is a lethal social disease. Right. Yeah. And it's so sad because we can actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's happening in our back. It's like, it's happening in our backyards. It's in my backyard in Toronto. It's your backyard here in mm-hmm. Halifax, a coast to coast. Right. But it's a social prescription that's needed. Not, and that's a di- little bit, it's still the prescription, but it's a different kind of prescription. In, in your research, um, have you, are there other models that are being used around the world and in other countries that, <laughs> that seem to be working well mm-hmm. to like address some of these issues? So are you, you mean around the homelessness issue? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, talking about large scale interventions, um, you know, one of the things I'll say before I jump into that is a lot of the time folks are like, you know, who, like, who are you to speak about upstream issues uh, around poverty and homelessness? You function downstream. Like I am a palliative care doctor that helps people who are on the margins, uh, but there's no better time to look at a person's life than at the end of it to see the way inequities impact people's lives. We are caring for people who shouldn't be dying, basically, Mm -hmm. but they're dying. Mm. So let's go upstream to think about earlier in a person's life what would have made a difference. So housing first um, is for folks listening. If you haven't heard of the policy um, housing first, this is a very interesting way to solve homelessness. One of the biggest studies on homelessness ever in the world happened in Canada. Who spoke on that at TEDx Toronto? There was somebody who was speaking about um, the housing crisis and how it was it, a woman, and um, I, 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 don't, I can't recall her name. It was to get it was to get the right to a home to be included in the Bill of Rights. Was mm-hmm. that is that? Are we speaking it, on the same it's, thing? It's or? a very yeah. It's the same concept. It's the idea that currently what we do is we 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 make people jump through hoops to get housing, but housing first flips that flips that on its head and says says like hey give this person a home and let them make the decisions they need to make about their own care and social care and health care so that they have the right to, because housing is a human right. Mm. And guess what? Um, this study that happened in Canada called the at home Chez Soi demonstration project between 2014 and 2017, it worked. It was in five cities across Canada. People felt better. They attended health care more. Their mental health was better. They, they, the police were called less. It was cheaper. Uh, and yeah, there's been some really great writing on, on around it. Um, Andre Picard of the Global mm-hmm. Mail wrote a really good summary on it, too. Where are we going to get him on the show? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He wants to come on. Yeah, he's a cool cat. And you got to go, you have to look upstream because obviously you want to see fewer people that you have to care for. For sure. Like that's your, I mean, I guess that's got to be the, the ultimate, the ultimate goal is to have no people that need... I mean, you know, the likelihood of that happening in the near term is obviously very slim, but I mean, that's got to be the goal. So looking upstream to see where, how can, what changes can be made, what things can be put in place to have less people that are in need of this, of this, of this kind of care. You got it. Actually, like, I'm going to be really honest. uh, It's a sad state of affairs that uh, a program like this needs to exist uh, Mm. to care for people who are dying. Um, And, and the goal is that programs like this wouldn't need to exist, but you got to go upstream and, you know, um, housing first is a good example of a social prescription that could potentially address homelessness for folks with mental illness. I, um, I don't, um, my mind doesn't go the way that this question is going to (laughs) be. I'm asking it for the people who would, be the the people who um, would would kind of challenge your way of thinking. If, if somebody who's more fiscally conservative, I guess, yeah. if they say, you know, homes for people who can't afford it, who's paying for it? Taxpayers. How does that work? Like, is is it going to be really expensive for? 
taxpayers to prioritize housing for people who can't afford it? Yeah, like, you know, it's a, it's a very common response and uh, I totally get it. You know, homelessness is a very expensive problem. It costs the Canadian taxpayer $4.5 billion each year, which is wild. It does not get talked about a lot, right? Um, and the other thing to remember is that when ho- the homeless and vulnerably housed population has, cr- has a crisis, they attend um, places that are expensive to the taxpayer. They're eight times more likely to go to the emergency department. Once they show up at the emergency department, they're four times more likely to be admitted. Once they're admitted, their admissions cost roughly more than $2,000 more than compared to like you and I, same mm-hmm. age, gender, and diagnosis, for example. So the, we're already spending uh, uh, because people are out there and they're homeless. Let's actually invest in housing and it's cheaper mm-hmm. for the for the, the most severe. Uh, we know that for every dollar, you get like a $1.87 back. That's what kind was shown in the housing first study um uh, depending on what how you kind of like stratify the sectors but um but it can be a cheaper actually to invest up front for sure mm, yeah. totally and yeah. looking yeah looking at that i mean it's very similar to the conversation we were the having around Trikafta. yeah and it's like you know this drug that could treat jeremy and it's this you know it's not available yet but if he took it it would like so it would dramatically improve his cf and his lung function and all this stuff but it's crazy expensive and but if he would if the if that was something that the government had as an option for him, then think about all the drugs that would get then get taken away because now he doesn't have to take those drugs because trichaptic, you know, treats the symptom that mm. makes you need the, those drugs. Yeah, and yeah. like how it all how it all comes together, and you know, if you if you make this investment here, I mean, I guess one of the challenges in terms of the government from the government sense is that it runs very much like a company in the way that you want to see. You know, they need to, to show that you know, the deficit or the, or the budget doesn't increase by this much in this yeah. year. So if it's like you make this big thing this year, then like that's going to f- every like you, d- you can't look. It's so hard to look 10, 15, 20 years down the road and go like, yeah. well, if we make this decision now, then 20 years from now, we're going to be laughing because all these people are going to there's the tax, the the weight that this puts on the healthcare system is going to go way down. There's going to be people living better lives. They're not going to need the same type of health care. Hope their life, their average lifespan is going to increase, which like is so crazy because it's 35 to what, 40? Uh, yeah, 34 to 47 34, years old. Like that yeah. is, it's absurd. I mean, I, mean, yeah, like, I watched The King on Netflix last night and yeah. I'm pretty sure that was the lifespan yeah, of the average yeah, person yeah. in the 15th century. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. But that, that's why what you guys do is so important. You put these issues under the microscope, right? And, and, and similarly, that's why I'm so grateful you, you guys have me on because uh, I'm, listen, I'm a big fan of birth. Like, I, I like birth. Birth is cool. Like, but birth has had its day, right? <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of focus on it as a social justice or equity issue. I think it's really time to look at death. Amen. Right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, or, or dealing with serious illness, which is, which is like what Sick Boy is all about too, mm-hmm. right? And, and the equity issues that come, um, so like we clearly live differently. Should we die differently? Like, is that like what kind of society do we want to live in? And the best way to judge a society is by how we treat our most vulnerable. And we talk about double vulnerability in our work. So these are people who are dealing with life limiting illness and death for sure, but they're also dealing with the illness, social illnesses like poverty, homelessness, yeah. not having food in the fridge, not having money in the bank account, bank account, or you know, a roof over their head, or family and friends to take care of them. So, since you started this in, in 2014, was it? Yeah. Um, what type of impact have you guys seen in Toronto and, and how are other cities uh, across the country looking at this and saying like, 
whether or not they want to be enacting programs like this in, in, For sure. in their locations. Yeah, great point. I mean, locally, we've, we've done um, you know, some really intense uh, studies to follow. We, we followed like about 42 folks really closely over a year and saw what happened. We know that 64% never went to the hospital or ER, 80% died where they wanted to, 83% were reconnected with family and friends. So in 2018, the federal government um, put out um, a national um, framework on palliative care and named PEACH as like a best practice in equity around palliative care, which is really neat. But colleagues across the country um, are, are um, starting programs. Uh, in Victoria, my colleague Kelly Stajdahar and her team uh, started a program called PORT in Calgary. There's the Calgary Allied Mobile Palliative Camp, Program. Yeah. Camp, yeah. Simon Colgan, who yeah. you know, Jeremy, right? Um, uh, and uh, Dan out there in Edmonton, Kara Bablitz and the Peacoat Program. Uh, and actually, I can't keep track anymore. There's programs like all over the country and it's like Seattle, Brisbane. I know in London, England, they're starting something. So there's a sense that this this kind of works it looks different in each uh, area but there's there's a recognition that this mobile outreach palliative care approach is important to support this population is I, it, go ahead i i, I want to know well if you're continuing on this on this line of things because i i'm gonna i'm gonna pivot i was just i was my it wasn't so on that i was thinking um obviously everybody deserves this everywhere but when you look at when you look at locations that uh, and it was when you mentioned Seattle that it really popped into my mind. When you look at locations that deal with like, you know, from the Halifax perspective, like super overwhelming levels of poverty and homelessness. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. when you go down East Hastings in Vancouver, I mean, yeah. it is, I mean, it's like a, it's a, it's basically a city. Like it's, yeah. it's, it, it, if you, if you're seeing it for the first time and you are not from a city that has, or maybe you're from a rural town or like Halifax. We have home. Obviously we have homeless people here, but like, I remember when I was 13, diff- I, I saw it, it for is the first time right. my, when we went to go visit my uncle in Vancouver. Like it's, sh- it's shocking. Yeah. It was traumatizing. Yeah. Like yeah. as a, as a child, I remember like not being able to go to sleep that night. Do, you know, it, so in those locations, is it more challenging because of there's a, because there's a greater number or is mm-hmm. it, or, or does it have its advantages because it's, people are more conscious of it because it because it is more of an issue and there are more people and it seems like there's more of a community right. in those places because the levels of homelessness are so high. You, you know, it's 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 really interesting uh, that you bring that up because really the face of homelessness is is not the same across this country. We often think of you know homelessness as the guy in the corner with the street sign like panhandling, right? That's a very static example. Mm-hmm. But actually, homelessness is a continuum. Canada has one of the most progress- progressive definitions of homelessness in the world. We see this with our clients. Like they're on the street, then they're in an emergency shelter, then they get into transitional housing, then they get an illness and they're back out on the street and they go back and forth. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, suburban homeless it, homelessness is different than downtown homelessness. Right. But but guess what? Um, for, um, uh, everyone is just as sick. And actually for every one person you see on the streets, there are 23 others we don't see with the naked eye who, who are vulnerably housed and are homeless. So when you see that person, it's just like the tip of the iceberg. So across the country, there's like different levels of engagement around what, you know, inner city health or care for this population. But it looks different. But I can see, I can tell you there's a huge commitment. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I got, had the opportunity to speak at uh, Hospice Halifax uh, yesterday, uh, and they had an event with the United Way Halifax. And the community is just so energized here to mm. to, to to serve this population, both you know through you know uh, beds uh, to help people with, who are in need of hospice, but actually through outreach as well. Mm. And this is an example of a really motivated community here. Have you come across a guy named Jeff Carabinow at all? No, no. Okay, I I'm just no. wondering. He's a friend of mine um, runs a. Um, um, he's a professor at Dalhousie, but he runs a, okay. uh, he runs a winter shelter. So it's a cold, it's a cold season 
cold season shelter yeah. and like, you know, I've worked with him. Um, we did a show a couple of years ago, which was that out of the cold. Out of the yeah. Cold. Out of the yeah. cold. Um, and, um, if it's not up already, it's definitely gearing up to go. And you know, they put out obviously a list of things that they need. So there's a little shout out for them. Cause the winter time is obviously a big season for them awesome. where they need to, they need to, they need a lot of supplies and stuff. But, um, um, just that the, the seriousness this the the state of homelessness how it changes when you, when you're a country like Canada where you go into November and the 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 temperature drops and I mean if you're left outside like you you could be dead I got home last night from this party that we were at and I took Loki outside and my dog to go for a pee and I was cr- across the street I saw these two guys and they were holding a guy up against a tree and at first I was like what is happening over there so I I kind of like I kind of like got out of view a little bit and looked over and they were holding up and then I could tell that they were being like kind with him and they were like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And they held him up and then they were trying to hold him up and he just kind of slumped down this tree and they were on the ground and they were just looking at him and like, and I was like, what are they, what's going to happen here? And then they started to walk away and I went, yo, is that guy okay? And, and they were like, they were like, yeah, we don't know who he is. We literally just passed by him. We tried to get him to like, respond he didn't so we thought we'd like lay him down and start to walk away and see if that like kind of like kick-started him a little bit if we if we weren't around and and i was and i was going okay and i'm thinking to myself like if i don't see this and maybe maybe they're telling me the truth maybe they're not i have no idea if they walk away and that guy sits there by this tree all night it's like minus six like what's gonna happen to that guy yeah And, and and i don't and i don't know if he was homeless or not but just the fact that He's he he might spend the night outside, right. and that might kill him. And thinking that there are people out there, homeless, mental illness, can't like people who are in need of palliative, yeah. people in pain. I mean, like it is a, I mean, it's a, it's like I commend you because it's so hard to even like think about because there's so many compounding, yeah, issues and problems that you're like how does this play into that? And like, totally. how do you think about it if this is the situation or if you're in this place or like, it's, it's, a uh, it's mind bottling. One, one thing yeah. I think about though, bottling, <laughs> it's a mind, it's, mind bottling. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a let's blade. go into that. How does it bottle your mind? <laughs> it's like, you're so, it's like, you're so blown away. It's like your mind is trapped in a bottle. <laughs> got it. Got it. Got it. Um, the, when I know that we're talking about like the overwhelming nature of 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 this problem, um, but when it comes to Halifax specifically, something I say about innovation in Halifax is that I think of Halifax as like the Goldilocks city. Like it's it's a big city, but it's got a small enough population that you can actually like yeah. come together, collaborate, and get For things sure. done. But I feel like Canada is like that as a country too. Like when we look at our population compared to the United States, we have like a tenth of the population. We have a big area, and there's a lot of space to cover, but I, I feel optimistic about the ability for us to come together and and solve some of these problems. If you imagine that the United States only had a tenth of the population and they were only trying to solve a problem 10% of the way, you'd think that they'd be able to do it. And yeah. it's kind of like we have that opportunity as a country to do that. For sure, yeah, absolutely. The innovation, the drive, the compassion. It, the I'm amazed every time you know, we put out a piece or we're, we're covered somewhere the, the way com- Canadians come together and are just so passionate Ooh. about 
the issues we're dealing with, you know, mm. people with structural vulnerabilities who are dying on the streets. Um, we're pretty good at equality. We're pretty good at giving people the same things to be happy and healthy. That's like what our healthcare system is pretty good at. What we need to work on is equity, giving people what they need uh, uh, to be happy and healthy. Mm. So giving everyone a shoe is equality. Giving everyone a shoe that fits is equity. And that's the issue here. Um, uh, people who are on the streets who are dying, they're going to get the same access technically because we have universal health care uh, that anyone would have even if you lived in a mansion and had like 10 kids to support you through an illness. But 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 the needs are different. Mm-hmm. And with Terry, the guy who died, he needed, some, he needed something so different. Mm-hmm. He needed compassion, he needed flexibility, he needed more resources, and he didn't get that. So that was the difference That's a really powerful story about Terry because you realize that, you know, that's one person and you're putting a name to that story. But the reality is, is that there's hundreds of probably thousands of people in the run of um, a year that are realizing the same existence. Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. We've covered this before on the podcast, and... Um, uh, but it was like, I think it was just through the three of us. And I feel like the fact that we have a physician here to really like uh, to hammer this home in a way that uh, will make a lot of sense is, would be very valuable for us and also our listeners. Um, what is the difference between palliative care and hospice care? Yeah, for sure. So palliative care is, is, is an approach <coughs> to care that uh, emphasizes quality of life for anyone with a serious illness at any stage and phase of disease. We know now that when people receive palliative care right at the start of a diagnosis, uh, not only do they feel better uh, physically, like their symptoms, for example, but emotionally they do better. Their caregivers feel more supported. Uh, But recent research, particularly in in the cancer world, and there's more research on the way, uh, shows that not only people feel better, but they live longer. And um, you don't necessarily need like a palliative care doctor to receive palliative care. It's an approach to care. Mm. And it can be it can be your family doctor. It can be, uh, you know, a nurse. It can be the way you're, you approach an illness and even your own mentality of it, for example. Um, and then there you can have flares of palliative care needs, for example. And then so like an, someone in the emergency department might help someone in pain crisis on a given day. And then, you know, or an illness can go into remission, for example. So that it's the whole journey, really, right? Hospice care emphasizes sort of end of life care and the last phases and stages of of a serious illness journey and and, so, and often end of life care and hospice care is encompassed in palliative care but it's really the last part of it um and you know so palliative care is is is, is really that approach to care but it's really an opportunity I, I that's how i actually define palliative care it's an opportunity to actively treat it is active treatment it's, it's like it is doing something in fact it's doing a lot for people with with illness and there's a big misnomer i mean you hit it on the nail jeremy like it's not end of life care right uh, uh with that question and it, and it and it is not doing nothing it's mm-hmm. doing a lot it's Mm-hmm. I remember um, our, our friend Brandon, who um, died from cancer a couple of years ago, um, when he first told me that he was seeing a, a palliative care team, um, I like my heart sank. I was like, oh, right, fuck, yeah. this yeah. means he's going to die. And he actually survived that 
um, he went into remission after that bout of cancer. And, and I was thinking like, what? I thought, I thought they said he was seeing a palliative care team. Like, yeah. doesn't that mean that he's going to die? There's yeah. a lot of people and, out there that, that where that train of thought of like palliative equals death. Mm-hmm, There's yeah. a lot of people think that. And I found even at like conf- like hospice care conferences or or like the International Death Symposium like yeah. there's there's even some people there that that yeah. don't quite like have a gra- and they're like really trying to make that uh a, you know a piece of these like conferences where they're going hey like yeah. let's differentiate the two because in some places is it not sort of like one equals the other yes. and and they have a hard time like separating the two. So, so there's there, every conference has <laughs> a section on the identity crisis and, and, right. and, 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 and what sh- there's always a talk on what should we call ourselves? And uh, now people are sometimes calling it supportive care. And, and, you know, I'm, no matter where you stand on the debate, you can tell that w- the bottom line here is that death is stigmatized. It's kind of like yeah, taboo yeah, in our society. Yeah, yeah. And there seems to be this desire to avoid it. But when in some studies, if you don't call it palliative care in some centers, referrals actually go up. Right. But then 20 years down the road, that term supportive care will be the term that palliative right. care is today. So yeah, like, right. yeah. where do you yeah, draw right. line? I mean, it's challenging. I don't have the answer, yeah. but it's like, it's language just evolves and changes and like, that'll yeah. just, that'll just adopt exactly. the new thing. Um, so speaking of palliative care and, and, and hospice care, um, I know we've, we spoke about Terry, <laughs> yeah. um, but, I, but I would like to hear, um, you know, I, I still would like to, to hear, I kind of want to wrap my head around how, palliative care and in particular like through through the work you do with peach yeah um a a mobile palliative care unit like how does that how does that look for somebody who is dealing with something like uh cancer who who is homeless who doesn't who doesn't have a place to stay yeah like what is the what is the the step by step i know it's obviously vastly different per patient right but like uh, a hypothetical patient, like le- I want to hear what that sort of process looks like for them. Yeah, for sure. So you know, uh, you know, I'm, let's take a, a vignette of a case. For example, you know, we get a call from a caseworker working in a shelter that has a managed alcohol program um, that serves individuals with substance use disorders around alcohol, so harm reduction. Uh, and you know, he's got a new diagnosis of, let's say, end stage kidney disease, and he he wants to stay in the shelter. He wants to be comfortable. So the first thing is we go out there and we meet him on his on his terms where he where he wants to meet and we ask it we 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 basically connect with him and the goal of the initial conversation is how do you want to live how do you want to live your life given all this information what do you want what are your goals of care you know I want to be in this harm reduction program I want to stay at the shelter I call this home right so um, great uh, what matters to you I want to be pain free I want to, I want my friends to visit me I, I get lo- I get lonely you know like I need I need supports around that so we, we wrap around care and, mm. and like you said it's different for each person so you know the physician part is very small actually yeah. like yeah. The, the, the key folks who run this program are my colleague Sasha Hill who's our nurse coordinator she's like the case manager for the program but the, the nurses go out the PS W's our peer worker. We have volunteers uh, through a partnership with Hospice Toronto that actually connect um, and actually spend time. Whether it's like going grocery shopping or playing dominoes, whatever it is. Oh, that's cool. 
Yeah, it is really cool. And um, I'll tell you about one uh, intervention that we have. Uh, it's called the Good Wishes Program. So we started to realize that like treating a folk like, uh, folks like this, this gentleman we're talking about, uh, we would like prescribe the medicines and we leave and be like, okay, we did like nothing because <laughs> the suffering here is not about, it's not what it's about, right? So we created this program called the Good Wishes Program where people get to have their gifts uh, get to have their wishes made. They they make a wish. I want a guitar because I want to play that Led Zeppelin riff one, one more time. Mm-hmm. I want to go to a Leafs game um, or cool. you know, or like a dinner at Red Lobster, right? So we're actually making these wishes true. We've granted like over 60 wishes just in That's the last amazing. Like, That's year sweet. and a half. I, think. I, w- I was thinking of Sick Wish when we were talking earlier. Uh-huh. Um, uh, are you... Have you heard of the program Sickwish that that we've done? Um, yeah, I, th- I think I have. Yeah. Uh, so I was thinking about we should look at how we can and talk about this after. This Neat. is kind of just to flag this, but I think it would be cool to look at how we could partner to um, to help Amazing. with some of those things. That would be that great. would be cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know, so so those wishes are really amazing. But sometimes the wishes are um, they're they're not like these tear jerking, heartwarming wishes. They're actually really sad. Sometimes it's, mm. we've had to access the wish program to pay for people's funerals. To pay for their meds. Mm. Uh, hey, you know, uh, Doc, thanks for getting me this apartment. I've been homeless, but like now I need furniture. Yeah. I need mm. a shower curtain and a shower head and, or a microwave mm. yeah. was last week's wish. And it's like... The things that you would take for granted that yeah. would never be a, a right, wish because right. because of our circumstance. Mm-hmm. Their circumstances dictate that their dreams, their wishes are 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 some of the everyday things that we would never... You got it. That are just kind of run of the mills for us. Mm-hmm. I, I know you ask, you know, you, so you just use the example there of someone um, in end stage uh, kidney failure yeah. and you ask like, all right, well, like, how do you want to live? What are the things you yeah. like? Do you, d- does, does the question of how do you want to die come up in those, in those cases? Yeah. So, you know, questions like, <coughs> where do you see yourself in the next few weeks or months? And for some folks, it's like, I'm going to be living, I'm going to be sur- like, you know, I'm going to be pushing. They haven't really thought about it. Right. Other folks are very clear and they'll, and they'll say like, I'm, I'm going to be dead actually. So that's often a really useful starting point for a conversation around what is, uh, what does death look like for you? Mm. You know, what does a good death look for you and mm. look like for you? And actually, it's often very different from what we would want for ourselves. We try not right. to project our vision of a good death on someone. Like mm-hmm. m- many, f- uh, we've we've often had cases where you know members of of the teams we work with are like, "This is not right. He's dying in a shelter. He deserves more." But like. But this is what he wants. But he yeah. also doesn't have more. <laughs> like it's sometimes like, that's the issue. Like my ideal death is at home, surrounded yeah. by like all my homies. Right. And but, but number one, a lot of these people don't have a home to die in. Right. And number two, like a lot of them are probably missing like a, a very like significant friend group or or their parents or their you know a, a wife or you know a significant other. Right. So so what. Like, what are some of the things that you've heard? They're like, well, actually, you know, so that is that is true. But I, I, I would challenge that a little, and yeah. I'll say, actually, there's a really strong community out in the streets, and it's a street family, right? And I don't right. really always understand, like, how how is she your street sister, or how is he your street <laughs> uncle? I mean, I don't get, it. I don't get it. But like, right. but these bonds are tight, like, yeah. like thicker than blood, like it's crazy. Um, and we've had cases where um, uh, a street brother has like become the primary caregiver in a shelter. Oh wow! Uh, you know, I had a case. 
uh, his story, uh, the guy's name is Dan Thibodeau. He was a, a feature of a Canadian press story that was in the Toronto Star and went around the world. And uh, he wanted to die in his housing unit at the Fred Victor Center in downtown Toronto. And as he went through his illness, he got sicker. And we, regardless of his wishes, we tried our best with Home Care Peach, Fred Victor, and we, he, we had to move him, unfortunately. We, had to, we, we just got to that point. And there was this, this caregiver. He was a young guy. He wasn't our client. He actually stepped up and he bathed them. He dressed them. He took he, he, he showered him. He, he got his meds. Every pill was always accounted for. He called us when things went wrong. He probably called us too much, but that's okay, whatever. <laughs> it's all good. And then at the memorial, he came up to us and he said, um, you know, thank you so much for giving me the chance to take care of Dan. It gave me a sense of self-worth I haven't felt in years. So I would say to people who work Whoa. in this field, think about how you feel at the end of the day. Like you feel good. Your cup is full because it's like that, um, that, that dignity, that compassion. But what about a traumatized population? Um, we think palliative care and being a caregiver can be like, like treatment for people. It can be, it can be really um, fulfilling for, mm-hmm. for this population. So there's a little vignette about that. For yeah. Sure. How do you how do you find um, you know we we mentioned earlier that like we live in a, a fairly death phobic society. Yeah. Um, do you find is it is it the same for people who live on the street? You know, it's funny. Uh, that's a great question. Um, my colleague Kelly Stajdahar is the the lead researcher on a study called "Too Little, Too Late: How We Fail Vulnerable Canadians as They Die." Definitely should ask the Google about that if, uh, for the listeners at home. Um, and what what that study did was follow twenty five people who were out in the streets and structurally vulnerable from um, uh, a diagnosis until death. Like nobody's actually just followed folks around and, and saw what their experiences were. One of the findings of that study uh, was actually that they view this population often views death very differently because death is just so common. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. in my mainstream work, when I'm trying to like convince someone to like, you know, think about the future, I might say, well, if you don't, you know, talk about, if you don't think about, uh, uh, you know, your goals of care and uh, you'll end up in an ICU with a tube down your throat and you'll end up, it'll be really bad. And and when when we do that with the homeless population, um, often they're like, dude, like that's my every day. I live Mm -hmm. my life on the edge. Like death doesn't scare me. Like my Mm -hmm. street brother died last week my street sister died the week before like so it's it's a the normalization of death mm-hmm. is a huge issue so it is different is it's it good. is it be, is it i mean sorry to cut you off there brian is it is it i'm quote unquote better than like what the average person like you or i like with who's living in a home and like you know has a steady job and all this stuff like is it is it better in the way that because it's because they're around it more, their perception of it isn't as negative. Just, just to piggyback ours. on that too, and and like in the way that their perspective changes, it can, the reason why I ask the question is because I think of all the people who we've talked who are facing their own mortality uh, on the podcast with terminal illnesses, yeah. um, because you know they've they've thought about it more. They oftentimes we see it as like a healthier way to look at death right and it and i guess to ask taylor's question like is it a, is it a healthier way to look at it do you find well you know it's 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 just different really right. uh it's it's just so normal and so the focus is often around survival mm-hmm. uh and so uh research shows that particularly the homeless and vulnerably housed are less likely to agree to not having cpr if they have a cardiac arrest they're more likely to pursue aggressive care but that's because they've <laughs> they, they live every day on the edge and have to survive and maintain a sense of sustenance and dignity uh, through their day to day. So it's different in that way. Death is so common and normal, but it often leads to more aggressive discussions. That's why peach and interventions like this are important because it, it allows us to meet people upstream and work through the distrust of the healthcare system and the trauma that people have experienced (laughs) to meet them where they're at. 
It kind of remind. It, 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 I was thinking along the lines when I asked that question of like, of you know, if you've we, we talked to uh, I can't remember her name now when we were in L.A. Um, Caitlin Doty. Yes, about uh, like different cultures of death, um, right. or or different cultures and how they view death and death ceremonies and yeah. things like that. And you know, the if you're in uh, Rishikesh, India, it would not be weird to see <clears throat> them carrying um, <clears throat> carrying a body down to the Ganges and to light it on fire and set it off into the water. Yeah. And like, and everyone, it's like a, there's a celebration around it. I mean, it's, it is absolutely wild. Yeah. Clearly a very different way to look at death than we right. do. And, and because of that closeness to it, it seems like you're like, well, these, these people got it kind of figured out. Like they're not trip, they're not tripping nearly as much as we are when it comes to death. And I guess that was sort of the genesis of that question was mm-hmm. these, they're much closer to death. They've got friends that are, you know, sadly, you know, dying, but they're, in, they're much closer to it because of this, you know, you know, is there, is there that, that kind of positivity is not really the right word, but that they look at it in a way that is, uh, that's maybe just like a little bit more, a little bit more progressive. Maybe that's not the right word. No, but- I, I mean, again, I, I think you kind of, you kind of nailed it when you said it's just different because it's, yeah. it's there. The circumstances aren't, the circumstances aren't like it's rich with culture that's been around forever. Right. And this yeah. is what we do. And it's not normal to you, but it's normal to us. And the circumstances aren't, well, I've been told that I have terminal cancer and, you know, I've had some time to reflect and, and like, and, and, and bringing my children in close to me and enjoying the, you know, the time I have left on the lake with my feet up. And, and it's, it's fucking different from that. It's, it's like, it's like the person in Syria who's like, well, a bomb might fucking blow up and kill me today. So that's my Monday. You know, it's, it's, I don't know if it, it's definitely not like a healthier way to look at death. I think it's just an, it's an unfortunate situation that forces you to be okay. Right. Not even okay, but like just accept the, the, right. yeah. the, the reality, the reality which yeah. is like, I'm, I live on the fucking street and I don't, I don't have, yeah. I don't have the, yeah. you know, the, the privilege of, of having certain types of security around me. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so, you know, yeah, different I yeah. Think is, is, the, yeah. is the way yeah. to put it. Oddly enough, there's been a lot of research on like uh, advanced care planning in the homeless population. And one, a couple of things that have come out of that is that this population often, um, uh, fears what will happen with their bodily remains mm. because they've seen so many of their friends die and their bodies have just got, you know sat in morgues or not been claimed or like just nobody's cared about the afterlife care or they've been um they've been noted to be like a Jane Doe or John Smith like be anonymous and this is something that really matters so we spend a lot of time on aftercare um and thinking about like we that's a we were very intentional about what will happen to your body and have that conversation with folks Maybe a little more than in the mainstream population. Um, right. So just an interesting finding. One other thing, just because we were talking about the journey and what we might do around care. So we wrap around care and, you know, you know, the gentleman with the kidney failure um, ends up dying at the shelter. Mm-hmm. It's a good death, you know, quote unquote, like what he wanted. What happens after? So this is what I wanted to get into this. Yeah. So, well, like one of the things we noticed when we launched the program was. Uh, you know, definitely the care was like appropriate and it's what it's what the person wanted. But what about the staff? And what about the people who are on the teams that are doing this out in the streets and in the shelters? We noticed a lot of burnout. 
Mm. We, noti- we noticed a lot of people actually like a lot of staff turnover. It would be these cases that would lead to these issues coming out, uh, coming about. So we actually started uh, uh, something called the uh, Healing Circle, actually, uh, where we come together after a death, um, and we the whole team, all the members of the different teams, come together, and we come in a circle. It's a very safe environment. We light a flame and we cry. There's a there is an episode of White Coat Black Art where they they cover this and, right. and what you guys do and it's like it's very intimate they're they're recording during one of these yeah. uh one of these um uh grief ceremony what, what do you what do you how do you refer to it so like it's a, like a debrief we, a, we call yeah, it a healing a, circle a healing uh, circle yeah. yeah yeah um it's it's like it's beautiful um uh but when i was when i was listening to it there was a part of me that 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 it made me think about how, like, I, I don't, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but it, it made me wonder what the process is for, um, say, like our friend Brandon who who died in the hospital. Like, do, does his medical team do something at all similar to this? Yeah, like there, there was something to it that was so so personal, right, and so close to. Um, so close to the patient, yeah. which is something that I've always like had this assumption that like, oh, doctors don't do that. Yeah. Physicians, uh, care teams don't don't get too close yeah. because of the you know of of well, it's like part of the job, isn't yeah. it? it? Like, aren't you trained not <laughs> to be? too emotionally attached to to the patients that come in. Yeah, well, well shout out to Brian Goldman and White Copac Art for covering this. Um, mm-hmm. and be, be, so when the episode came out, we got like a flurry of like <laughs> Twitter responses about like, how do you do this? When do you do this? Like the mechanics and and it, what it, what really came out is that this is probably something that we need to be doing across health totally, and healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you're, you're right. There's this common um, perception um, that, you know, we're not to get too close as health providers. We're not to... Um, you know, overly invest emotionally, but how can you not? How man? can you not? Yeah. <laughs> and even exactly. if you're, even if you're, even if you're actively trying not to get close, you're, you're going to create your own story about that. If that patient right. is, if you're taking care of that person on a day to day basis, um, in, in the hospital, even if your intention is to not get personal, you're going to create a story in your own mind around that mm-hmm. person. And then when that person, if that person passes on, that's going to affect you. Yeah. I, re- I remember um, when, like, talking about Brandon specifically, uh, I go to the gym with a couple of the physicians who who worked with Brandon, and um, I remember <laughs> going up to one of the doctors after, and and he was like, "Hey, like, look, I, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or not, but I knew Brandon personally and actually worked with him, and I just wanted to um, give you a hug and say sorry for your mm. loss." And like, he was tearing up, yeah, too during that, and like. I just think about like how, you know, he, like how, how deeply that affected him too. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that that's a really good point, Jared. And and I think that that's amazing that that came up because, um, there's no doubt that they become emotionally invested in their patients. For sure. And the healing circles just allow us to really like grieve. We laugh, we work together to like, remember the person, reflect, and then, as a team say, okay, this has happened. How are we going to renew and reinvest in each other so that when we go out that door, because sadly we will go out that door and there will be not just one or two cases. We're going to have to do this again and again yeah. and again with the opioid epidemic. It's yeah. it's just insane how much 
work is needed in this area. Mm. So we need to like support ourselves in that. Yeah. You know, like there's a lot of talk about um, self care in in our our line of work in healthcare, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's like there's like the superficial like I, I, like level of self care. It's like yoga and running. Like I don't do yoga. Does that mean I can't care for myself? Like come on, <laughs> right? Like self care is is not just yoga and running. Although that might be part. You of should it. do yoga though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, all for, I'm all for yoga. Like don't get me wrong, but um, but it's about critical self reflection. Yeah. And when you ask me about um, health providers, you know, do we do we do that um, across the board? And that's probably why we should. Yeah. There's some research about like pediatric teams doing that or um, when there's a death or like in the trauma bay, mm-hmm. um, trauma teams taking a moment, a minute of silence yeah. to reflect. Do you get, did you get any pushback? Like after the, the segment, the, the white coat black art segment came out, did you get any feedback of people being like, like nah, that's med- not, that's like not medical help. community. Yeah. Yeah. Like people saying like, like kind of like old school thinking of going, no, nah, that's not healthy for you guys. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'd like to think of myself as a shift disturber. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, um, yes, we did. We did. And there was, there was definitely a school of thought that you should not be bringing your personal emotions into things. Mm-hmm. You should not be, uh, uh, reflecting. Um, and then there was also, there were also folks who, who, who have, not there's a lot of folks who don't participate in the healing circles, and I, I wonder if those are the folks who like really need to be in the healing circles. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if they're like my grandparents who think that I should work forty years for the government <laughs> and then retire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's just like this is how you do life. Yeah. I was uh, I was talking to um, I have two good friends of mine. One of them's uh, one of them is uh, with the police here in Halifax. Another one, another one is a police in Connecticut. Right. And we were hanging out, and they were having we were talking about um, we were talking about like what happens when they respond to a call and we're talking about we're talking about ptsd and kind of like the the like taking your job home with you and how like mental health and um in in the context of being a cop and hearing them swap stories about how their how their um their police team or force what from in these different places handle and look at responding to a a call, a call that might be traumatic because whatever, whether it's something that just is in the, something related to the, something the cop has gone through or if there's a kid or whatever, like so many different aspects and hearing actually that here in Halifax, there's a really great support system with the police here where, you know, you go to a call and, um, you know, What's like you're 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 four or five months pregnant and you show up and there's this thing with a, that where a kid has been involved and because you know you're newly pregnant and there's this you have this this trigger that you are all of a sudden like rocked by this and everyone rallies around and 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 doesn't wait for you to come in and say something but goes like hey like how did how did that make you feel like is there do you need to take the rest of the day do you need to do this like is there anything <clears throat> that we can do are you okay with this and you know another person going. You know, the same, the same situation at my job, everyone just goes like, go to the next, like take the next call and go. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, just in the way that self, like self care and having a being open and vulnerable in the way that everybody's going, Hey, this is what we're doing is heavy yeah. and we need to think about that yeah. and it's affecting me and it's affecting you. And if we don't think about it and reflect on it, we're not going to be able to, like you said, burnout is really present. Like you are not going to be able to do this job very long. Like yeah. you need to be able to take care of or yourself. Or if you, or if you do, if you do, then it's going to do the job for long and you continue. 
it's going to have an effect yeah. on the way that you do your job you're gonna pay with the people that it. you're trying to do that job for, Absolutely. you know? Um, I, I'm, I'm curious to know, and, and the, I mean, this might have already been answered throughout the conversation uh, without, without really having tried to t- touch on it, but um, what is, what is relationship centered care? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a, a response to the fact that like every hospital or like health marketing people, they, they, they like this term patient centered care, patient inspired care. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. But like when, you know, I'll tell you the story of Archie. Um, uh, Archie is, is the feature of this like CBC radio documentary called what's life worth for those who are listening. Um, he's 66 years old. He actually owns a home. He's a retired engineer. He worked for Bombardier for several years and then he becomes homeless due to an unfortunate sequence of events. He's sitting at a, a bus stop and he has abdominal pain. He's taken to the hospital and he's diagnosed with terminal gallbladder cancer. He's discharged the street. Um, where we meet him in a local shelter. And then his son is diagnosed with brain cancer and is dying in a local oh, palliative fuck. care unit. Oh my God. Yeah. So like patient and centered care, what's that going to do for someone like this? Right. Ooh. And he's um, dealing with his own mental illness and substance use disorder. And um, long story short, um, relationship centered care comes to play. Right. Uh, um, so, you know, one of the things about Archie is he loved to like, you know, be in um, uh, uh, one of the more popular parks, uh, Allen Gardens in Toronto, doing the da- daily crossword with the sun in his face. And so we'd actually do our, our care visits there in the park uh, with his permission. And, and so he could spend the time he had left doing the things that he loved. It's the kind of situation where, you know, you know, Doc, I know you showed up at the shelter at 12, but at 12, they serve food. Are you willing to wait? Because I have to go get food. Because if I don't eat, I'm not going like, to line up. I'm not going to have food. Yeah. Doc, are you, are you going to be upset when I have a few more Percocets because I have a substance use disorder um, and I'm doing my best um, uh, but like I might have a few more Percocets will you be mad at me or you know um you know, nurse, thank you so much for getting me into this hospice for my end of life care. But my friends can't visit because you need a bus token to get there. And will you hold my hand as I'm as I'm dying in my last breath? Like this population, uh, the care, it, it looks different and mm. it's more relationship oriented. Um, uh, and so we try to contrast, you know, patient centered care, which is important, too. But relationship centered care. Mm. Is this something that that you like you and your team has coined or is this like a. Is this a sort of movement that's that's trying to to get its legs and become more uh, more more known universally and globally? You know, I I, I don't I don't know actually. Mm. <laughs> uh, I think it's really come from within. To be yeah. honest, I'm sure someone has written something about relationship centered care. And, you know, it's probably something I should ask the Google. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, but it's 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 just natural because yeah. of the way we need to care mm. for people. They the, the population we serve like often doesn't care about my medical knowledge or my my understanding of complex pain techniques. They just really care about if I'm like down to yeah. hang, have mm. a conversation. If I'm chill, if I'm going to be, if I can, they can depend on me, you know, those things matter way more Mm. than all of the above. It sounds like, it sounds like that's, well, that sounds beautiful and incredible. And it sounds like the unfortunate situation that a lot of these people find themselves in and needing care from, from the programs around the country and the programs that you're involved with, as unfortunate as that they need that, it seems like it's bred this thought process around care, which would be really beautiful to see used at scale in every type of care for yeah. everybody. I mean, yeah. like relationship mm-hmm. based. I mean, that's some, that's a common theme since we've been starting the show is where, what is that balance between being, getting your health care and being taken care of, but also not feeling like you are, uh, you're a stat on a sheet and you're just a yeah. clipboard yeah. and you're just, you know, you're a diagnosis and you're getting pushed through and having that 
having that rapport or that balance of, of, of understanding that you're being taken care of by a human and they're seeing you as a human, you know, because oftentimes we talk about that all the time. You go into the hospital and you're just, you know, you're a number, you're a case number. Just think of, think of the word care though. Like what yeah. does it actually mean to care for somebody? Yeah, yeah. Like you have to feel that sense of meaningfulness and connection and purpose. And like you actually are invested in them having a positive outcome. So That's like right. it, like, I think we we really forget about what it, what it truly means to care for someone, and I, and I think that the way that you talk about relationship centered care, it, it it sounds like you know it's the real meaning of what care is. Yeah, and so this question we often ask ourselves, and it's become the program's tagline: "What's a life worth?" It's the name of my TED talk that I gave in 2017 because it really asks the question: um, what what is a human life worth when there are all these deficiencies in 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 our society and inequities that exist because the care it needs to rise above that you know just being a stat or a person on a clipboard mm-hmm. and it needs to be compassionate right yeah and so we hope we're hoping that by asking this question what's the life worth in different you know in different spaces and places with people we're asking people to question what compassionate care really means and we hope that maybe this can inspire and and you're right we need to scale that up but like how right we know that when people provide compassionate care and are equipped to do so the care is better people feel better there's less moral injury and burnout there's less staff turnover right so it's time to focus on that Mm -hmm. from your experience of going to med school is there anything that you can point to in like the educational process of becoming a physician that would, or a nurse or any, like any healthcare worker that you could see being beneficial to like slip in and, and, prov- and make, take that aspect of care relationship and make it have played a little bit of a bigger role or have a little bit more importance in the educational process of becoming a health Working in healthcare, yeah, you know, to varying degrees across the country, there is sort of like a like a every school is doing a really good job and and improving their ability to deliver this sort of like art of medicine or the humanities side of medicine. Mm-hmm. And every school does it differently. Um, I graduated at McMaster University in Hamilton, and we had an amazing professional competencies course, which which talked about the art of medicine and how to deal with trauma and you know some of the issues we've been talking about today, compassion. Um, <clears throat> but one thing that I think is really powerful is narrative medicine. And it's it's what we've been talking about. It's like telling stories. Storytelling, right? yeah. It's soothing to like, it's soothing for me. To like, I know we're, we're hanging out doing a podcast, but I feel a lot better just having had the opportunity to tell you all these stories. Absolutely. Like, I, I just feel better. Can you imagine what it's like for someone who, who writes a poem or writes a story or, you know, privately journals? Like that is part of critical reflection mm. too. Ooh. So I think that is something that we can definitely be scaling up in the medical education system. And it's a really powerful uh, a tool that I think like, you know, can really be soothing and therapeutic for people. And storytelling really his purpose. Yeah. I mean, you tell that story and you feel your purpose renewed probably each time yeah. you tell that story. You, no know, you, you come back to it and go like, I'm, I, I have just as much or more resolve to continue on my, on the work that I'm doing because I've just told this story. I've renewed those emotions, that connection that I have to that, to these people and owed I go to continue my work. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, Nahid, I got like, this has been such a fucking treat. Yeah, for me too. Honestly, like I, I, I mean, when I, when we met, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, um, I just remember like that day feeling like, oh, we gotta, I gotta get you on the show sometime. <laughs> like this has got to happen. I'm so glad that we, we finally were able to make it happen because, um, I think that the work you are doing again, like I said, it, it, it blew my mind the first time I heard about it right. and, and it continues to blow my mind still. Um, and, and I've been following, you know, what you've been up to and, and for, for anyone who, who, who's listening to this and, 
and wants to be a little bit more informed and wants to kind of follow what it is you're up to? Because you are you are very busy online. <laughs> um, uh, you have like a great a great presence online. Um, what how can people how can people stay kind of linked through what you're what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. So on Twitter and Instagram at Nahid N A H E E D D, um, and through that you know you can really follow the journey. Um, and many of our colleagues with the Peach team are very active across the country. Palliative care equity researchers and <coughs> clinicians are really active in the like what's a life worth movement, um, uh, so to speak. So I uh, you know I really look forward to having people um, uh, follow along, and and I look forward to you know uh, journeying along with with you too. Um, and I. Just just want to say to you guys um you are super inspiring and you got to keep doing this this sick boy movement is huge it's so important you're giving a voice to those who need a voice and i'm so thankful that you had me here and it's an honor truly it was a pleasure it really was <laughs> uh and and thank you all so much for for listening uh it means the world to us and uh, if you want to continue to support the podcast, uh, there's a few ways you can do that. You can go to Apple Podcast and leave a rating and a review and hit the subscribe button. Um, that's that's a big one. Uh, you can also... You can go to patreon.com slash sickboy. And everybody out there has been a, a supporter of ours and helped us um, you know, visit, new, visit new cities, um, plan shows, <laughs> uh, provide everybody with the stories that come on this podcast is, uh, is a result of, of everybody who supported us on there. So you can go to patreon.com slash sickboy and be a patron. And thanks to Donovan for the amazing sound design. I just want to say, Nahid, I'm, uh, I'm super inspired by um, the sense of purpose and meaningfulness that, that you and your work um, sort of imbue. And, and I think that Donovan... Uh, he's in- incredible at, at finding sounds that represent things. And I think that he can um, make it sound like the inspiration that I feel in my heart um, that you've instilled in me. So you. he can find it, whatever that, whatever imbued sounds like, yeah. he's going to find the sounds <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes you feel yeah. imbued. And yeah. it's, here it is right here. And wow. And thanks. Thanks Donovan for that. Thanks. Take Take part or whatever your name is, Jamesy. Jamesy for the theme music. <laughs> Jim Jay. Uh, you guys are, you guys are great. Uh, that is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. I'm Nahid. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.